was like, and it was like, and I, I think it was like an eighteen dollar burger. I like that they use um, that they use a uh, American cheese. Oh, was that what it was? American was, cheese. I hate American cheese. Really? Yeah, I hate American cheese. Just because cheese. it says America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, what it stands for. <laughs> no. no, but I, I don't. I, I, the old, there's only one thing I like American cheese in. What's, only one thing. What? Is a sausage egg McMuffin from McDonald's. That's the only thing. It's good, but do you prefer a different type of cheese on a burger? Yeah, cheddar. Cheddar? Of course, cheddar. I'll take any. I'll take provolone. I'll take Munster. I'll take anything over American cheese. That's why, like, if, you know, I don't know, let's say, for example, so we're not talking about the fancy burgers. If we go to McDonald's, mm-hmm. if I'm going to get, like, a um, a quarter pounder, yeah, I'm always going to get no cheese. No cheese. Because I can't stand it. I can't That's stand American disgusting. cheese. <laughs> and extra onions. Have you ever had a grilled cheese with American cheese in it? Okay, yeah. I guess that I've had, but... Only when I was a kid, and I liked it when I was a kid. But now, if I'm gonna have grilled cheese, it better be one of those like fancy, fancy ones that have like <laughs> cheddar and gouda and like you know all of those kind of fancy cheeses. So. We had a we had a charcuterie board the other night. We had some friends over. That's pretty fancy. That's pretty bougie. Good. That's, <laughs> That's pretty good. Bougie. Julie makes a nice charcuterie board. Actually, I was just I was just talking to Steph the other day because she was telling me that she's been making Jacks, mm-hmm. who's my now five year old. His birthday was last week. But anyways, that he, she makes some sandwiches now that have this chicken breast that we get at Costco and that with salami. And I said to her, I was like, he likes salami? And she's like, yeah. And I said, because I've seen, I've seen the kids eat it sometimes, but I didn't realize that like he actually had it for a sandwich all the time. And really, and she's like, why, why does that seem weird? And I thought, because I don't know, salami seems like a very sophisticated sort of meat right like it's not ham it's not turkey it's it i was like doesn't it kind of have like a little bit of like a sort of sour flavor to it i mean i, I like salami uh-huh. right but don't you would you agree with me that because it made me think about when you said charcuterie board i mean i'm thinking that's like a very bougie you know very sophisticated sort of thing that you know probably salami you know won't be the most expensive meat on there but it's going to be probably on there that's right yeah, that's the main thing. right and so i don't know i guess i just so when you said that, I kept thinking like, yeah, like it's for charcuterie boards. It's not for kids that are in five, you know, that are in preschool to be taken to their lunch, but obviously he likes it. So I mean, expensive uh, taste. My mom made me salami sandwiches when I was a kid. To go really? To school. Yeah. Salami? Really? Among, yeah. I mean, okay. I'm, I'm you're not, you're stuff. not, you're not confusing salami and bologna, right? I mean, I had a lot of bologna sandwiches <laughs> as a kid because bologna does taste like it's like on the bottom rung of all the meats. Yeah, dude. My mom made it's down there with spam, essentially. She, no sacrilege. Spam <laughs> is delicious. <laughs> you just haven't had it. No, no. I mean, I've had it, and it does taste good, like in spam masubi, right? Like, you know what that is? Like, yeah, those, yeah I'm the not thing a big from fan. Hawaiian. Julie loves it. I'm yeah, yeah, fan. yeah. I mean, it's, it's a Hawaiian thing. Spam right? and eggs. I just, you know, it's delicious. It's so salty. It is. It I mean, is I, salty. and I like my food pretty salty, but. It's like unnaturally salty. Well, so like, so if you do like spam with like white rice and eggs, all I mean, this stuff's I mean, kind of bland. Yeah, and you throw yeah. the spam in there. That's, that's probably true. I'm, and I'm not saying that I'm not surrounded people by people that love spam because mm-hmm. Steph loves spam. You know, like she loves spam, like just like you said, like spam fried rice yeah. or in spam masubi. You know, so it's always something mixed with rice to like tone it down, right? Mm-hmm. But to think that I would have a sandwich. 
that had spam in it seems pretty disgusting. Uh, so to me. I've never had like a spam sandwich, but I have used it as a substitute for bacon. Okay, no, but bacon's like a good salty. Yeah, so like spam, a really dude. no, it's like a sickly maybe you're, sickly salty. Maybe you're cutting it too thick. Maybe you got to That kinda... might be it. That might be it. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, it's it's another bottom rung meat like bologna. My mom used to make the worst. Um, the worst sandwiches for me as a kid. I guess like for her, they were, you know, good and healthy, but I mean, I guess except for the bologna, but like, I mean, think like bologna mustard and like walnut bread or something like that. I'm like eight years old and I open up my sack and I've got bologna and mustard and walnut bread, you know, and my buddy's got Coke (laughs) <laughs> in his with like a quesadilla. <laughs> oh, that's bad. That's bad. I mean, I, I remember when I was in, in, I don't know, fourth grade or something like mm-hmm. that. Like, do you know that brand Budig? Budig meat? Yes. Right? It's really thinly, really, it's like really the thinly cheapest sliced. Yeah. The cheap. But for whatever reason, I can't remember what my parents bought for me, but when I went to school, there's this one kid who always had Budig and I would always, always beg him to like trade with me really? so I could have the Budig meat. So you're telling me now, I didn't even realize that Budig meat is the cheapest meat. It's, I mean, it's, it's like where like bar, was that bar K or K bar or I don't know what that bar is. S bar S they make hot dogs and I've it's been heard of yeah, that. It's, it's around there. So anyway, another bottom rung sort of meat. It's no boar's head, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, I got that. So what would what would your parents pack for you? They would pack for me. I mean, like typical, you know, like a turkey sandwich, uh, you know, peanut butter and jelly. Oh, like so American kind of food. Yes. <laughs> okay. So you weren't getting like uh, I wasn't getting like uh, bento uh, like boxes. Bento box. No, I, my kids. Pork okay. bun. Yeah, I wasn't getting pork buns. I wasn't coming with fried rice or anything like that. So a funny thing is that is that because I grew up with only you know eating mainly Asian food at home, uh-huh. I loved American food. And I remember I did, you and, right, me and that. I didn't even care what the quality of American food was. So I loved going with my dad, who you know he, he was a physician or he's a physician, and he used to take me to the hospital right when he would do rounds on the weekend sometimes. Mm-hmm. And if he let me get a turkey sandwich from the cafeteria, yeah. oh, that was like heaven to me. Really, right? I loved it so so much. Or you know, if I went anywhere and they had, you know, like say meatloaf yeah. or, uh, I don't know, like potatoes a gratin or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, like it was just like so, for lack of a better word, like so foreign to me because I was eating so much Asian food at mm-hmm, home. It's mm-hmm. just like it was such a treat to eat this stuff. And it wasn't like, you know, if I went to school, I didn't have it. If I got a school lunch, right, or if we, you know, if we went out or something. But it just, I don't know. I just had this like affinity for like. American food. So, oh, like another thing, like, do you remember those Hungry Man dinners? Yeah. The frozen yeah, dinners? Yeah. Used to beg my mom to, really? like, to like get that for us. Did you, what is it, the Salisbury steak? Did you oh, like I love that? Salisbury steak. <laughs> like my favorite. I used to, and I know there's just the thing about it being like all compartmentalized. Yeah. And you could have like the dessert, you could like right. save it. I mean, now when you look at it, you're like, it looks disgusting. That's the American bento box. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I, uh, so I used to like, My mom would, she would work like, uh, she would work a few days a week. And so she was a hairdresser. She used to work out of the house. Mm-hmm. And so she would always give us like pot pies. Mm-hmm. Were you big on papayas at all? I had them and I did like them, but I didn't have them often. We were so burnt out on pot pies. And wait, wait. So hers were store bought or she made them fresh? No, Marie Callender's. Oh, it's know, Marie Callender's. 
Again, but, uh, one of those things where like if I could ever have Marie calendars, oh, I was in heaven. That's it? Yeah. Yeah, I loved it. The, the TV, TV dinners we didn't do so much because it was unhealthy. It, because it was frowned upon? It, well, I guess. <laughs> in my I don't family, know. it was totally fine. It was it was unhealthy to her and so okay. and she wasn't she wasn't going to feed that slop to her kids garbage know. right uh-huh. it was marie calendars but i loved taco bell and taco so bell. she would have that occasionally she'd take like a lunch break and she'd go pick up taco bell and so by the time i got it it had been sitting there on the dryer for like three or four hours because it's leftover from lunch. And you still like it. Heck yeah, because I'm, you know, I'm a kid. I want fast food. <laughs> <laughs> I was kind of wondering what what's the where do you think the stigma came from with hospital food? You mean that is that's bad? Yeah. Well, first of all, I think there needs to be a distinction made between what they serve to the patients mm-hmm. and what they serve to people who go to the cafeteria, which could be nurses, could be doctors, could be mm. you know visitors. It's not the same thing. I mean, I've never sat down and had like a direct comparison, but uh-huh. the few times that I have visited someone that's in a hospital, the food looks about as bad as the stereotype is. Well, I feel like maybe that's just because they have that particular dietary restriction. Because but sometimes of- it's not. It's not a dietary. Sometimes it's like, for example, you know, when, after Steph gave birth, right? Yeah. And you know, so obviously she probably had restrictions prior to, you know, delivering. But once she did, she could probably have anything that she wanted. And stuff that came up was looking pretty bad. What do I, don't even, what I don't even remember what it was, but it looked bad. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, for me, again, I think I think even at my age right now, I still probably have this like subconscious like draw to American food because it just, I don't know, it's, you know, everything I explained about when I was younger. So if I were to come into Steph's hospital room and if she had anything that was like american food i'd be like oh let me have a bite mm-hmm. i didn't want to touch it really <laughs> oh so, no and again i don't remember what it was but i it was not you know it didn't look appealing at all i i remember so i was a candy striper at oh kaiser right yeah wow well, look this was no charity event okay <laughs> yes i was gonna say this was, um, this was a requirement by the courts by a, of- yeah by a certain entity <laughs> we'll just leave it at that because so, Preston would never, ever choose to do this by his own accord. That's right. That's right. He was ordered to do, I don't know how many hours of uh, community service. And there was a Kaiser down the street. I was a teenager. And so I was a candy striper. And I loved eating at the cafeteria. I mean, I looked forward to that. Okay. So what I'm saying is that maybe the cafeteria food is good. It's mm. just different. So it wasn't just my, like, seven or eight year old self that liked the American, you know, hospital cafeteria uh-huh. food. You're actually verifying that as a teenager who, you know, ate American food day in and day out, you yeah. still thought it was good, right? I did. I did. Okay. For the record, I don't think they're giving different stuff. It's like they don't have the slop kitchen and the, uh, the I don't think go. so. No. I mean well, okay, I'll say this too. Okay, I mean, I'm not seeing Salisbury steak given to patients, right? So, <laughs> right, that's what I'm saying. Maybe it's too greasy for patients. Maybe could be. Like, look, you get Jello and mashed potatoes, and that's what no gravy, mashed potatoes. Could be, could be. <laughs> I mean, what I was what I was going to say though is that maybe my standard was so low when I was younger, right? Is that that if I actually took the turkey sandwiches that I loved from back then uh-huh. and compared to the turkey sandwich that Steph got after she delivered, it would probably be the same. I don't know. Maybe. And then one, now I think it, look, it looks and tastes awful. And before yeah. I thought it was unheaven. So when Julie 
gave birth to Paige, I went down to the taco shop mm-hmm. and I got her a breakfast burrito because so nice. Yeah, even but it was terrible from what I remember. Well, I was gonna say that's that stuff. She was um now I forgot what the term is, but basically she had too high of a sugar blood sugar level. Yeah. Um oh yeah, it was called GDM. GDM gestational diabetes, right? So basically when you're pregnant and then it's it's like you have diabetes during that during the pregnancy. And so anyway, so she really had to limit her sugars, right? Mm-hmm. And really monitor and she was like um, and she was taking her, her, you know, sugar levels every day and whatnot. And so anyways, so she couldn't have much sugar. And so I remember she, she had me go out and buy cake, like her favorite cake <laughs> because she, she wanted to have that. That was like supposed to be her treat. So yeah. she ended up having that right after she gave birth. Because What's the flavor? It's from, um, I can't remember the place, but it's, it's a chocolate cake. Oh, so okay. yeah, it's a chocolate cake. It's it's really really good. Urban plates actually. It's called okay. Urban Plates. Yeah, um, they have a chocolate cake there that's really good. My mom makes a really good chocolate cake. It's it's impossible to me to find good solid chocolate cake. Like mm. I, you might have to have your mom make me one because I mean I talk to stuff about that all the time. It's like I cannot find a, a good chocolate cake. Like sadly, one of one of the ones that I that I feel like I I like. It's not the best I've ever had, but it's like I know where I can go to get it is. P.F. Chang's, funny really? enough. Talking uh, about American food, Asian food. So yeah. I have to go to an Asian restaurant, which it's pretty whitewashed, but Asian restaurant to get good chocolate cake. Right. That's so, funny. What my mom does, I don't know. How do you feel about cherries? Do you like cherries? You mean that's like a garnish? Just in general, do you like cherries? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I don't ever seek it out really. but So when you make a chocolate cake, like a Betty Crocker mm-hmm. chocolate cake, it mm-hmm. calls for... Like an ungodly amount of oil okay. in the cake. And so what she does is she replaces the oil with the cherry pie filling. Okay. And mixes in with the chocolate cake. And so you get the moisture from the, the filling and then you've got these little... But does it taste like cherry? You get all these little chunks of cherry with your chocolate cake. But if you don't like cherries, then you would not like You're kind cake. of shit out of luck. <laughs> which is my daughter. So my daughter does not like cherries. And so it's like, Grandma, can you make me a chocolate cake without cherries? And then she's like, I don't want to put all that oil in yeah, there. Yeah, exactly. Well, I was going to say, like, so I didn't think that I had an opinion about cherries until mm-hmm. you just until <laughs> I just tried to picture what this cake looked like. And I was like, I don't like cherries. I, my mom makes one for me every birthday. And I will save you a slice so you can try it. With the cherries? With the cherries. Okay, okay. I'll, right. have her, I'll have her pick them out for you. All right. Okay, so is this episode about... My love for American food, regardless of the quality of it, or is this about something else? Well, I wanted to talk about stress and anxiety this episode. And this is something that um, was kind of new to me. Well, it kind of hit me out out of the blue, and I didn't really know what it was, what even to call it, until, you know, years later. Uh, And it's something that, that I kind of, manage at least the anxiety side i wouldn't say so much the stress side because i think i'm pretty low stress but i do have um bouts of anxiety and that's been pretty manageable the last like year or so mm-hmm. but noticed i guess i guess 
I noticed that. So my daughter's 17. She's almost 18 years old. A little bit of backstory. So I, I have never been like, I broke up with my kid's mom when she was pregnant. My Riley's mom when she was pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause her mom was crazy. <laughs> I mean, of course the crazy's on the other side. It's a good reason, right? Yeah. So at the time I was also going through like a, a legal battle too. I beat somebody up and I mean, look, yeah, my listener, life was listener. He has a very complicated person. You know, when you listen to his voice, you probably think that he seems like the guy next door. And in a lot of ways he really is, but let's, let's keep digging deep into his, <laughs> into his past. I'm a pretty open book. And so you know, I've made a lot of mistakes in life, but I've also learned a lot of lessons and I'm okay with talking about this, you know, stuff in my past and whatever. Um, but I was not a great person when I was younger. I was still trying to prove myself and just, you know, trying to find my way in life, I guess. And mm-hmm. um, so my my daughter, Riley, was born 17 years ago. I was 23. And um, I was fighting her mom in court for custody at the same time that I was fighting a, a criminal case for beating this guy up. And I was still working at the time and I was a delivery driver. And I remember feeling like terrible, sick to my stomach, couldn't think, uh, just kind of like spinning and stuff. I mean, this is all like stuff you don't want when you're driving a delivery vehicle. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I was trying to picture all this and I mean, I guess it comes down to what, what exactly does spinning mean? It was just a feeling of spinning in your head. I guess that's okay. Just so dizzy Uh, and, um, and so I remember pulling over it and like throwing up like on the side of the road. Um, and I didn't realize until like years later that like, that was a panic attack. Okay. And every time that, I mean, so I went through a custody battle for years and years and years. Um, and every time that I had to go into court or something like that, I would get massive anxiety just mm-hmm. Stepping in the court, just thinking about sweating, can't think straight, sick to my stomach, just all of that. Um, and I never knew that this was an I didn't ever know this was anxiety. I didn't know. I just thought I was stressed out. Well, so so my question mm-hmm. to interject is, is, so do you think that, so when we're talking about anxiety, are we talking about something that you think that um, can be unique to certain individuals that they experience more of it than the average person or when we talk about anxiety, we're just talking about that general feeling that everyone has when they're in a stressful situation that they don't know what the outcome is. Well, funny. You should ask. Okay. Preston's picking up his phone right now and I'm sure he's going to actually come up with the Webster's dictionary (laughs) definition of it. And here's an even funnier thing. So I, where we tape at, there's no internet. Oh, yes. it's, it's a weird little like pocket. This, yeah, we said this in a different episode, but basically we we are recording in the little makeshift library that my community where I live, the HOA has set up. And, and it's a great quiet place for us to do this. And we hang out here, but there's actually no service. So <laughs> we're not going to get the definition, I don't think, anytime uh, soon. All right. So it actually, I thought about this ahead of time. And I took some screenshots. <laughs> 
<laughs> See, you prepped for it. I didn't. <clears throat> um, so let's just look at the definition of stress. So stress, according to uh, the Oxford mm-hmm. Dictionary, mm-hmm. says uh, pressure or tension exerted on a material object. This is not the right definition. The <laughs> you took a screenshot of the wrong thing. No. <laughs> okay. There's a few. A state of mental or emotional strain or tension resulting from adverse or very demanding circumstances. A state of mental or emotional strain. i got to read it twice so I can let it sink in. Okay. Resulting from adverse or demanding circumstances. Okay. So it's a state. Got it. And then anxiety is a feeling of worry, nervousness, or unease typically about an imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. Okay, so what I my take from that would be that stress can be something that you feel for could be an extended amount of time, mm-hmm. right? Because these same pressures or circumstances, they're not changing and so you constantly feel that stress. Anxiety mm-hmm. to me sounds like it's a more temporary thing that it's something that you feel immediately preceding some sort of event right. or some sort of situation that you you know are are you know worried about and i think stress can also be a thing that can be done away with once whatever is causing stress goes has been away. removed right, right. whereas anxiety can come up every single well first of all it can probably come up in a lot of different situations right Mm -hmm. like you can feel anxious about a lot of different things that come up in your life and that same anxiety can come up over and over again well i guess in that sense it wouldn't be the same as stress because if you remove the situation Mm -hmm. that you're dealing with or that you are you know apprehensive about then wouldn't that remove the anxiety i think anxiety a lot is um not I don't like to use the word triggers, but I think it oftentimes if there are specific situations that you think might be a bad situation, then you'll be anxious, like worrying about it. It's going to happen. Stress to me seems more like something that's ongoing that you're really like worrying about constantly. Well, Okay, so my my take, listening to kind of what you're saying, mm-hmm. is that I I think that stress is something maybe that is about something that is more real, maybe mm-hmm. um, something that is that can be verifiable. It's currently way. happening. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Whereas, like for example, like when people say uh, that that he's an anxious person, mm-hmm. right? So that could mean that it's not about a specific situation per se but it's this person brings that mentality or that that sort of feeling to uh, many situations that, like right? the the anticipation of something right and it could bad. be based on whether or not that person let's say for example you know if someone is shy right so if they're shy then every single situation that they're put into where they have to have a lot of social interaction they're going to feel anxious right yeah. but they could also still feel anxious just the thought of mm. potentially going somewhere and doing that, you know, where stress is more to me, like you have stress because let's say the same person who's anxious about being in these social situations, someone gets stressed because they're a shy person and they take a job where they have to network every single day. Right. And that's their job. That's their reality. So therefore they feel stress 
every day because they're put in that situation that they're uncomfortable with. Right. And then the anxiety would come um, prior to, you know, a meeting that they have to host or something like that. Right, right. They're anxious about, you know, am I going to stutter? Am I going to this and that? Right. Um, So I, I didn't have it for a long time. It was really just like when I would go to court. Mm-hmm. And I was just really anxious because I didn't know what outcome was. Right. You know, am I right. going to lose time with my kid? Am I going to end up in jail? You know, like what's going to happen? And so I was just super, you know, anxious about about that. And and then it kind of, and that was really the only thing that I was really kind of anxious about. And then I would um, I would start getting anxious when I would have my daughter over on for visits and stuff like that. Okay. And I don't know why that was, why I was anxious about that. I think it was a lot of times it was because there was a change with her and we'd have to exchange Riley with her mom. And it was always like a tense moment, you know, Mm -hmm. is she going to talk shit? You know, is there going to be, you know, her boyfriend's going to be there. Is it going to be a problem? You know, am I going to be on time? Is she going to be on time? You know, it's just always worrying about stuff like that. That, that, that anxiousness over my daughter and things have dissipated severely. Um, but then I noticed I started getting, you know, anxious about other things like, um, to be honest, I mean, when you and me started hanging out again, like regularly, I was kind of anxious about meeting up with you and, you know, like, what if we don't click and what are we going to talk about? And, you know, this and that. And, and so I would start getting like the social anxiety where, I didn't want to um, be around people or I would get anxious when they're felt like I was going to be in a situation where I wasn't a hundred percent comfortable. You ever get, you ever had like social anxiety or something like that where you're going to be around people? And Um, so, so funny enough, uh, one of the jobs that I had in the past was I was an executive recruiter, Mm -hmm. right? So like a headhunter, which basically companies would hire my firm to go out and find people to fill positions that they had. And these were all at executive levels. So in order for me to do that job, I had to have a roster of candidates, right? So that would mean that people that I had made contact with and I knew their backgrounds, I had met with them and I knew them, you know, thoroughly so that when these positions became available, I could present these candidates, right? Because they were open to looking at new opportunities. So, In order to create this roster of candidates, I had to meet with a lot of these people, right? And when I first had this job, I did that job for six or seven years. And when I first did that job, I was totally fine. You know, I was totally fine meeting with these people and getting the information. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, and like I said, some of them were like very highly compensated executive level people, right? And at the time, you know, I had graduated from law school and, you know, I was in my late 20s, but still, you know, would think that it could be intimidating at mm-hmm. times, but I really didn't feel anything, you know, for those first few years. But then there's this period of time where probably for maybe, I don't know, six to 12 months where I started to get this anxiety. And prior to going into these, these interviews, mm-hmm. I, I would, I would feel anxious and, and sometimes I could control that anxiety so that I could, you know, kind of like suppress it and mm-hmm. I could go into these interviews. But 
and when I say interviews, it was more me interviewing them, right? So yeah. the anxiety was not because I was being interviewed, you know? So I was, you know, meeting with them and interviewing them. But sometimes it could be in the middle of the of the interview, and I would start to feel this intense sort of uh, anxiety, mm-hmm. pressure, maybe. And then I would start to sweat, right? And then I would have to excuse myself out of it, right? Yeah. And I would usually say something like, oh, you know, let me go. I need to check something from my file or there's something else I want to show you. You know, I was pretty good at like making, you know, valid reasoning for why I would need to get up in the middle of a meeting and, and go out. But it was, I mean, it was just because I was anxious in those situations. And so I, I never really, I don't remember. I mean, it's been a while now, so I don't really remember how I coped with it or how if I did anything to make the situation any better. But I make it past that. And I haven't really had any, any situations like that again, but I I do always remember that as being this weird anomaly in my life where for me, you know, for most of my life, I've been very comfortable in social situations, Mm -hmm. but for whatever reason, I don't know what was going on in my life at that time. Like it just came up out of nowhere. I couldn't shake it for a while. And then somehow it just was gone. Yeah. I was going to ask if you, if you could attribute that to anything in particular not, not really. I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't, because like we're, we're talking about social situations, right? So mm-hmm. like right now I sort of think like everyone that knows me thinks of me as being, you know, a very outgoing social person, right? Um, and then I forgot where I read this, where, some, you know, people were talking about being like a introverted extrovert or an extroverted mm-hmm. introvert or whatnot. And so I know for myself that, you know, it's not as if I thrive on being in social situations. Like, you know, like if Steph tells me that she wants me to go to like her hospital Christmas party, I mean, I'm not jumping at the opportunity to go do that. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. like, like to me, you know, when I hear that, I I sort of think like, that's kind of going to be a drag, Mm -hmm. you know? And it's, and it's not because I can't, I guess, perform, can't perform socially, I guess. Um, it's just that, that's not an environment that I seek out, right? So sometimes I think, well, you know, someone who's truly extroverted, they would really want to be in those kind of situations, you know? So I guess my point is this, is that is that I don't feel anxious in those situations, mm-hmm. right? So I don't know how relevant it is, but I don't feel anxious in those situations, but I also don't seek out those. Um, but I think that, uh, like Steph, for example, she's probably a lot more shy than me, and she does feel intimidated by those kind of situations. Mm-hmm. But funny enough, she's the, she's the person who forces herself past that anxiety because yeah. there are certain things that are so important to her. Like, for example, um, you know, my, my daughter goes to school, right? And so she's in first grade now. And so they have these events where it's like the mothers of certain classrooms that get together for, you know, like happy hour or something like that. And like those situations, normally to me, I would have thought there's no way Steph wants to do something like that. Yeah. But specifically once Charlotte started going to school, she wanted to go to all these things, even when she didn't know a soul and mm-hmm. she just like had to walk mm-hmm. in there. And there have been situations where they had actually parent, you know, mixers like this. And I couldn't go because I was going to stay home with the kids, but she was like, I'll go by myself. And it just yeah. it seemed absurd to me, but she would push through that anxiety that she, that she, you know, innately has, just because it was important enough to her to put herself there because she wanted to, to meet people. Right. I think, I think that's important too. So I, for myself, you know, I realized that and this took years to, to figure out and I've been working on this for a, a few years now and I figured out that typically more often than not, probably most of the time 
um, 90, 95% of the time, all this anxiety was unwarranted. You know, it was all this buildup and the stress in my head about, you know, what if this happens? What if that happens? Because I, I suffer from, um, from overanalyzing everything. You know, I try to look at everything from every angle because I, I want to make an informed decision or at least know what the hell I'm walking into. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, with that comes all of the, you know, what if, you know, all the, all the negative what ifs. Right. And so more often than not, I, I get, say like, you know, we get invited to a concert or something like that. And mm-hmm. I don't really know anybody else that's going. It's Julie's friends or something and stressing out, you know, over this thing. And, and most of, and, and like in the past, you know, I'd weed or um, just something to try to take the, I don't drink, mm-hmm. but just something to try to take the edge off or whatever. And a lot of times that would help, but I'd prefer not to. Mm-hmm. And most of the time it's like, I had a great time. I enjoyed myself. There was plenty to talk about, talk to, you know, and it was just this big thing that was built up in my head. And so having that realization that stressing out, like anxious and it's going to be okay, has really helped me kind of just like push through. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of what you have to do to push through because anxiety is kind of like a fight or flight type feeling right you're either gonna run you're either gonna run and hide and not do this thing that's causing you anxiety mm-hmm. or you're gonna have to fight through it and just like get through it and i think that if you run from it you're hoarding that part of your brain that's like if i avoid this I'm okay and so the next time this this situation comes up you get anxiety it's like, oh, yeah, I can just, like, not deal with this. And then I think so I've, through the conversation that we've been having and, and just kind of, you know, as I'm formulating, like, my perspective on it, I feel like anxiety is something that seems to be something that you create yourself, mm-hmm. right? Like, mm-hmm. like I'm not even saying whether or not it's warranted or unwarranted. I'm just saying it's something that you create yourself where, you know, you know, because again, people are anxious. It's like a subjective thing. People are anxious to, you know, different situations. And then again, if someone is called an anxious person, then that person is usually becomes, you know, has anxiety about a a variety of different situations. And Mm -hmm. and a lot of times of situations that most people would not feel anxious about. Right. Whereas stress, when we're trying to make this comparison, stress seems to me to be something that is more objectively, stressful right Mm -hmm. quote unquote stressful so Mm -hmm. it's something where so anxiety a lot of times it seems that people and going along the lines of what you're saying is that people are more capable of controlling it themselves or altering you know like their own perspectives on things in Mm -hmm. order to make the situation better whereas most of the time when people talk about a stressful situation i don't really hear people talk too much about what people can do to change their perspectives in order to reduce the stress. Usually it's how do you just maybe even do things physically, like go for a run or Mm. get a massage or, you know, like things that are not about changing how your mind deals with it. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, yes, I guess to a certain extent, maybe that, you know, like meditation or things like that might be something that people could say, okay, that will alleviate your stress. But 
again, my, my perspective seems to be at this point that anxiety is something that self-induced. You, yes, exactly. That you are more in control of right. than, than stress. Stress is something external right. hits you and you have to deal with it. That's right? what I was Whereas that's what anxiety I was is like you said, self-induced where, where, you know, you might be someone who can limit the number of situations that you're anxious about from say 100 to 50 yeah. just by changing how you see things, perceive things. And that, that tracks with, with the data too. Cause I know that of course, everything I say tracks with the data. Of course, of course. <laughs> I know that people who, so that I was actually talking to Julie about this yesterday and People who, and you can study this like in their, their writing, people who talk about themselves, mm-hmm. I this, me that, whatever, in their emails and their conversations and their whatever, are more prone to anxiety because you're constantly thinking about yourself. Um, and that's that's anxiety is is me. It's I'm in this situation, I this, and I that, I'm going to have to deal with this and constantly worrying about yourself and so i know that a proven way to reduce anxiety um, in the moment is to start thinking about others and you can do to help others and literally takes your mind off i mean it makes sense right yeah because then you don't become the focus anymore Mm -hmm. right i mean because you are shifting the concern Mm -hmm. away from yourself and to somewhere you know, it's placed somewhere. That concern is placed somewhere else, right? Yeah. And so if you're more cognizant of someone else's situation over your your own, then that makes the stress or the anxiety go away, yeah. right? But again, to me, that that is something that is within your own control. And to me, anxiety, again, seems like something which I would say this would be a positive aspect of anxiety versus stress is that, you have more control over how much it sort of takes over your life versus stress. In, in a way. And, and again, I, I would say maybe I say that because I, at least from my perspective, I don't really have any issues with anxiety. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure if I talk to someone else that does, you know, right. even, even you, that you might, you might have a stronger opinion about that. Well, anxiety is, it's the, the shitty part about it is it's a, you get a feedback loop. Okay. And so it's like, I should be stopping or anxious. I should chill out. I should, it's like, I'm thinking about myself again. You mean, and okay. Meaning that it's, it's like this vicious cycle yeah. right? where you basically, because you're beating yourself about, about being anxious, right. you become more anxious yes. about being anxious. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. It's, and I've been there. I've been there dozens of times where it's like, I mean, I've, I could be laying in bed just being anxious about whatever is going to happen tomorrow. And it's like, I need to stop thinking about this. I need to go to bed. I need to fall asleep. I mean, so when you say that, I mean, I, immediately I think, well, have I had situations like that? And mm-hmm. I mean, for sure in my life I've had situations like that. So I think what I take from that is that everyone is anxious at some time, I at some so. point, right? Yeah. But there's a difference between that and people who say they have anxiety problems, right? Mm-hmm. Or issues with anxiety. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that that just shows that there's like a spectrum, right, of of how much it impacts people's lives, right? And I'm not at all saying that, you know, anything negative about people mm-hmm. who do have anxiety issues. You know what I mean? I, I think it has to do with a lot of things. It has to do with like how you're wired, how, you know, what, what have the expectations been, you know? Like, for example... You know, my being Asian, um, 
you know, probably no one ever talks about stress, mm-hmm. anxiety, any of these kinds of things. It kind of reminds me of how like, you know, talking about mental health is so popular now. Mm-hmm. Right. Whereas like when we were younger, no one talked about mental health, you know, like you basically just either, either no one, no one acknowledged it or you just brushed everything under the rug. Right. And so I think anxiety and stress is kind of the same way in Asian culture, which yeah. is basically, you know, you just do what you have to do. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and you suck it up. And yeah. so I think that, you know, those are the kinds of things that make it so that like, for example, for me, I mean, maybe the reason why I don't, don't ever have anxiety, you know, I don't, I don't identify it as an issue for me is maybe because of my culture and because how we deal with it, how we almost don't acknowledge it at all. Right. And maybe I'm, I am actually feeling the same thing as someone else who would say I'm an anxious person, but I just, I don't see it that way. So right? I think that anxiety or like the level of overall anxiety has increased <laughs> in in people over the last, you know, I don't know, several decades. Mm-hmm. But I think it wasn't such a a big thing because I think, you know, you think about like people like depression era and, and stuff like that. Like, I don't think people were really worried about themselves as much. I think they were more worried about family and like survival. Getting, right. <laughs> Right. right, which, you know, again, if you're not constantly thinking about yourself, then you're not. That's what we call first world problems, right? <laughs> exactly. And, right. and there's there's, this, there's been this huge movement in the last couple of decades about, you know, you and be you and be mindful of yourself and this and that. And it's, I kind of see a, a little correlation. Between yeah, that. I mean, you know, so if you're talking about individualism, right, and mm-hmm. And focus on yourself and focus on what's good for you and taking care of yourself and whatnot, then there's also the flip side of that, which is so much focus put on yourself that you start to, as you said before, overanalyze or, mm-hmm. or, or pick apart like so many different aspects of your own life and then start to see problems there. Right. Yeah. I mean, because like you said, I mean, maybe the, the point was that in the depression era, you know, people were just trying to survive, just trying to get food on the table or even have something to eat. You don't have the time to worry about all the minute details in your life. Mm-hmm. And again, that's not to, that's not to downplay what people feel anxious about in this day and age or even sure. before. But but I, I do think that it comes down to perspective, mm-hmm. right? I mean, even for me, I don't know if this would be considered, you know, managing my anxiety or anything like that or stress, but you know, I'm sure we all do this where, you know, you look at your situation, you had a shitty day and like you feel terrible about everything and feeling sorry for yourself. And then you just start to think about, well, you know, it could be, I could, my situation could be like this or that, right? Like if I have problems with my kids and I, they're misbehaving and I'm like, well, you know, at least they're healthy, you know? And then, you know, and it's not as if we don't even have friends that are specifically dealing with issues that are much more serious than, you know, what we deal with. And so it all comes down to perspective, right? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. In fact, that's that's one of the things that I use to as a um, coping mechanism, or just just a way to kind of rationalize how I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. Is take stock at my current situation. You know, how how's everything going? You know, I have a roof over my head. I'm not worried that the lights are going to be on later. I'm, I'm going to see food. Justin next week. Right. <laughs> We're going to eat something good and talk. Mm-hmm. Just you know. Things could so much worse. And so, you know, how, and kind of like a system check too, which is what 
like psychologists call grounding mm-hmm. as it's like to kind of like snap you out of your, your funk. It's bring, just, like, just bring you back down. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like, can I feel my toes? Can I feel my hands? Can I feel everything? And I blink my eyes. Do I feel the heat right now? And it's like, you know, just kind of like get back in touch with reality and quit, you know, worrying about whatever the hell I'm worried about. I, I've made a lot of progress over the last, you know, several years. And, and I think part of it too is I've really quit worrying about myself and my situation, trying to control situations. That was a big part of it too, is just trying to control, like realizing that I need to let go in a lot of situations, just kind of let things play out. Um, instead of trying to manage everything and, and being so worried about or so rigid about things and just kind of let them, let them happen. And, you know, you know, it just dawned on me when you were talking about it right now, about how you have tried to let go of this sense of control that you need to have. Mm-hmm. And I, this whole episode, I've been talking about how I don't really think of myself as an anxious person, but it just dawned on me that maybe I am anxious or I'm becoming, you know, more anxiety prone because all those feelings you talk about, like wanting to be in control, that's how I feel when we're talking about my kids, mm-hmm. right? So with my kids, you know, I've talked about this a mm-hmm. lot that, that you know, I, I vent with you about, you know, struggles that I have with parenting in terms of wanting to be this this idealized version of, of you know, what I think a parent should be and coming to grips with how difficult that is given you know, the reality of dealing with children, sure. right? And I think that I do feel anxiety all the time, right? Yeah. Like I... I worry about a lot of different things. I worry about the things that they are doing at the moment that, you know, might, might stress me out or, or, you know, uh, you know, not make me feel good, mm-hmm. but also about, well, if I don't address this, what's that going to do later on down the road? Or, right. you know, I want them to be this certain way. So what proactive steps can I take in order to put them not down the right path? Right. Like that's, it's worrying about a lot of different things that are actually present and, and current, you know, to, to what my life is. And, but a lot of them anxiety about things that are not even happening right now about, about things that are going to be happening years from now. But I feel the responsibility and the weight making those decisions and worrying about those things now. So I guess I, maybe (laughs) I do have anxiety at this point and it's specifically about kids. Yeah. I think that's pretty, pretty common too with, with good parents anyways. Mm -hmm. You know, because you always want the best for your kids and you, you feel like you've, you know, hit this age of, and you've acquired all of this experience and knowledge and wisdom and you know what's best and you know what's, you know, down the road, but, you know, and so it's like, if you do it this way, you'll be fine, you know, but it doesn't always work out like that. You know, I think, I think that that, I don't know if it's a shock to other Asian parents, you know, when I say, usually when I used to refer to Asian parents, I was talking about my parents, mm-hmm. right? But now I can call myself an Asian parent. Sure. Right? And, you know, in the podcast and a lot of episodes, I always talk about like how I'm Asian, Asian background, whatnot. But, you know, I think what people need to realize is that I was born here, right? Mm-hmm. In the U.S. I mean, yes, I'm 50 years old, but I was, you know, born here. So I basically grew up as, you know, a typical American, but I still was brought up by, you know, more traditional Asian parents. And, and I, and I think that I still try to preserve, you know, some of those teachings and, and mm-hmm. whatnot. But what I was going to say is that I feel that I am this, this Asian parent and I worry about all these 
these different things and I don't want to just see what happens, right? I mean, I guess that, but that's what we're talking about. This, this whole, you know, like letting, letting go of the control, you know, letting go of the predictability that you're trying to create, right? Like, right. And, and I think the other thing too is that parenting is, you know, you were talking about how like you think that you're prepared. You think that, you know, your whole life you've, you've gained all the skills mm. that you need to be a good parent. Right. And that's exactly how I felt. I, I kind of felt like I'm so patient, you know, I'm so understanding. I can see things from every perspective like that. Those are all the tools I need to be a good parent. But the thing is that, you know, it's not like the typical Asian path, which is, which is that you just study really hard, you prepare for everything. And then you, you basically don't let any, any stone go unturned. Mm -hmm. And therefore, because you have prepared so much, there is no, you know, unpredictability of anything, right? Everything is going to work out the way it should if you put in the work, right? right? Parenting is not like that at all, right? Like to me, that has not been my experience at all, is that no matter how prepared I feel that I am, I have to, I have to, you know, like, was it go with the punches, roll with the punches, with the punches right? Punches, yeah, yeah. I have to roll with the punches, right? Because they don't react the way that I expect a lot of the times. They don't, they don't, you know, they don't fall in line the way that I would have assumed at times. And mm. so I I have found it, you know, very difficult to adapt to that when my whole life has been something where, you know, it's been ingrained in me. If you put in the work, if you prepare, then you'll be fine. And I didn't, in my whole life, I'm not saying that I prepared, you know, I'm not one of those perfect like Asian kids that did everything the right way. I definitely did not, but that ideal was placed in me and it's just really a hard pill to swallow when it comes to kids and like just, you know, dealing with that. So I guess my point is this is that because of all that, I think that's why I have anxiety about it is because it's so, it's so unpredictable. And sometimes you feel like you are more at the mercy of not the kids, but just life. Right. Yeah. Like the way that, that life is and how they, how all the kids are different. They have different temperaments or whatever. And it's just like this constant shifting, you know, and trying to adapt to like mm-hmm. what the situation is. And it could be different daily. Right. There's this quote that I, I'm reminded of. It says, man plans, but God laughs. <laughs> exactly. You like, know, because you never know what, you know, what you're going to get. And you can see the personality differences. You've got three kids and you yeah. can see they've all got their own distinct personality difference. And I'm sure that you weren't really banking on any one of them to be the, the perfect child, you know? I wasn't banking on it, but I think that I had thought that I would be in a better position to figure out what is the best course of action to deal mm-hmm. with something. So I assumed that, that issues would come up that I maybe I didn't I didn't think that would happen, but I would I always assumed that okay, I could figure out like okay, if it's this if it's problem A, I have a course of action for problem A. If right. it's problem B, I have a course of action for that. But I think that what I didn't realize is that I will have, a, I will see the issue. I will come up with a plan or Steph and I will come up with a plan. We will want to execute that plan the next day. And then, you know, a few hours into the morning, we've already failed. And then right. we have to come up with a plan B and C and D and E, right. you know. And, um, and so that, I guess that's anxiety <laughs> inducing. Yeah. You know, my 17-year-old, you know, I I had wanted to be a dad for a long time before. I mean, 
she came when I was 23. And even years before that, I wanted to be a dad. Weird, right? Wow, yeah. That's um, really surprising. And it, it absolutely did not work out how I, how I you know, thought. Yeah, all the circumstances. Yeah. You know. I mean, I, you know, through this custody thing, you know, it's like I had her every other weekend, you know. And her mom was such a piece of shit, is such a piece of shit, you know, just filled her head with all kinds of nonsense, you know. And, and she... She really kind of strayed away from me as, you know, thinking that I'm the bad one and this and that. And, and uh, it's all kind of coming to roost now, you know, years, years later. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I had zero input or zero influence on her at all as far as morals go, teaching her anything, you know. And so it's it's absolutely not what I had envisioned in my head when she was born, you know, and, and, you know, just thinking about having kids in the future. And, you know, even like, you know, I met Julie's son when he was eight. That's when I met Julie, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that didn't go how I envisioned it either, you know, when he was younger, all the way up until, um, you know, a couple of years ago. We have a great relationship now. And it's, it's a lot of that is because, some of the seeds that I'd planted with him as he was growing up, you know, he realized that I wasn't out there to, you know, make a fool out of him or put him down or anything like the stuff, the advice I was giving him was actually good advice, you know, that he, he realizes now. And, and then Paige, you know, Paige is 10 and she's been like the perfect little kid. Thanks for rubbing it in. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I was just, I was just, just laying out how my kids, the six-year-old, five-year-old, and two-year-old, are not, you know, going into falling into place. And, yeah, so you have the perfect kid. Great. Well, so my point is, though, is that, that you're a better parent. I know. No, no. My point is, is that Paige is going. So she's in the middle of fifth grade. Next year she goes to middle school, sixth grade. And she's, even in this year, I see her attitude is changing. You know, it went from very obedient, very like, get right on it. I mean, bedtime, no problem. Mm -hmm. Lights out, jump in the shower, cool. You know, it's going from that to like, all right, all right, you know. And it's changing. And it's it's not bad. She's not bad yet. yet. (laughs) But, you know, the teenage years are coming. And it's... It's just like, no matter, you know, how much you can guide your kids now, your kids, you know, it's like once you hit puberty and then teenage years, all of that shit goes out the window anyways. Yeah. I mean, I remember I told you uh, one time I had this friend who his wife had told me that. So they, at the time they had a, I want to say like a 19 year old or something. Mm-hmm. And they had said that no matter how great of a relationship you have with your kids, you will lose them between the ages of 12 and 18. Mm-hmm. And she said, and hopefully you're one of the, the ones where they come back to you and then everything just kind of like resumes where it was prior to that 12 yeah. to 18. But, they're like, you know, she was like, you know, don't beat yourself up about it because no matter what, yeah. that's what's going to happen. You know, your job as as a parent, I, I believe, is to set a good foundation of, of guidelines and morals that that kid can fall back on in in times of uncertainty when they're in the prison cell yeah right <laughs> should have would have could have right <laughs> oh yeah i remember that my dad told me i should have done that hmm. yeah 
and then you look like food, a star. Food for thought for the next 20 years. <laughs> when I was a kid, you know, I, I was, my parents were Christian and I was raised in the church. I was raised Christian and, you know, I wasn't allowed to watch certain movies. I wasn't allowed to listen to certain music, of course. And my friend Billy was like the total opposite. Like there's no, no rules for him. He lived with his grandma most of the time and, you know, it's like Wayne's World was on and like, you know, he's... Because Wayne's World is the worst thing that I could ever have watched. So I don't know if it's Wayne's World or what, but I remember getting up from his house because he turned a movie on and I went home and I was like, I'm not allowed to watch this. Oh my God. So that's why you ended up the way that you were by the time you were a teenager. <laughs> right. <laughs> Complete rebellion. I mean, because because I couldn't even imagine myself. I mean, trust me, if something got put on in front of me, I would not walk away from it unless my mom was there telling me that yeah. I could not watch it. Yeah. Um, so to get back to stress and anxiety, um, I mean, it's it's hard to just, you know, say, well, you should do this, you know, because I'm not in your shoes. I'm you, not mean, you mean in terms of like your of, kids or oh, you know, right, whatever. Right, right. So I, I don't deal with your kids on a day-to-day basis. But maybe just kind of keep that in mind. It's like, you know, you have some guidelines and it might not happen exactly how you want it to. But do you even really want kids that are fully obedient all the time? Because, like, I'm thinking back to, like, these kids that I, you know, remember in school who, you know, never broke a rule at all. They were... You know, and I just think what a boring life, like just no personality, just like you're just, you just, whatever you're told to be, you just, that's what you are. Well, okay. But okay. So a few thoughts about that. So the first thing is that I remember, um, reading some parenting thing and it was talking about how if you are the person or if you are the parent that tells your kid all the time Mm -hmm. that they need to think about other kids, think about other kids' feelings and mm-hmm. things like that, that what you are doing is you are raising a child or a, or an, a human mm-hmm. that later on in life is going to be a people pleaser, right? Because okay. you ingrained in them that they have to think about others before themselves and they always have to make everyone else happy around them, mm-hmm. right? And obviously, people pleaser has a very bad connotation to it, usually, right? Because it's kind of like you're sacrificing yourself for others unnecessarily or to your detriment, And so it kind of goes back to the same thing of just feeling like I want to, I want to raise my kids a certain way, um, different than the way that I was raised. Mm -hmm. Right. But the problem is that it's seemingly, I keep falling back to more traditional ways of, of going about doing things. And so even listening to you talking about like how, you know, you have to create this foundation, I, I, I think that something that needs to be mentioned is that there has to be a trust, right, that, that comes into play where, you know, and maybe this, you know, tying it back into anxiety is that maybe that's where you release some of that need for control, which mm-hmm. hopefully decreases your anxiety is mm-hmm. because you put more trust in the fact that one is hopefully you and your wife, not you, right, but just, you know, mm-hmm. listeners, me, whoever, that you and your spouse are presenting a good example for them. And so they're going to pick up on that more way more than they ever would you, you know, saying the same thing to them over and over and over and over again. Right. So by example that they're going to pick up on things, but also 
you know, even, even the foundation that you lay for certain things, even when they're younger, or even when it seems like they're not listening, or even when they're actually arguing with you about it, that those things, some of those things will just stick with them because innately you did a good job in Mm -hmm. most of what you were doing. And so worrying and getting anxious about all the little details and whether or not I got this right or that right or whatnot is that that's, that's the problem, right? The problem is because you're, you're wanting to control and you're wanting to like create predictability in all these circumstances that, you know, you're in a situation that, you know, I think everyone sees as chaotic, right? Like raising kids. I mean, there's chaos in that. And so I, you know, I think what I'm taking from all this is if we're relating it to my parenting and my experience and my anxiety that comes from it is that, you know, maybe I can help reduce some of that by just letting go. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's why I mm-hmm. brought in all this stuff with parenting is because you were talking about, you know, relinquishing control yeah. to a certain extent. Uh, you know, one of the things that I've, I've been trying to implement in my life, well, me and Julie have both been trying to implement in our lives is in situations to step back and, and take a look at it and to assess, you know, is this a, is this a inconvenience or is this a, um, a catastrophe? Like is, and, and trying to formulate a, an appropriate response, you know, and I think. Are we talking about like things that, that Paige does? Just or a, anything, anything in Anything in general, you know, it's like, okay. um, you know, the, the bottom fell out of the trash bag and, you know, taking it out in the trash. It's like, is this, you know, grab the nearest dog and throw it through the window thing? Or is it like, or is it a eat like 10 Reese's (laughs) peanut butter cups and go on with your day? Right. So, Uh you know, and I think that a lot of that will reduce, um, maybe not anxiety because it's something in the future, but we'll just reduce stress period. And so I think maybe if you apply that into like a raising kids thing, it's like, yes, inconvenience, but like, is it like a freak out moment or is it like a learning opportunity or a growing opportunity? Yeah, I think I just, I I think it just comes down to, I'm sure it's the same way for a lot of parents, but the way I feel about it is that you care so much about your kids that Mm -hmm. you want to make sure that they don't have to struggle, you know, you try to limit how much they would have to struggle through things, right? Mm-hmm. So you you think that if you keep correcting them, if you keep telling them the way that they need to do things, at least from your perspective, that you're helping them because they're going to end up not having to struggle in certain situations that maybe you did and then you learned your lesson and yeah. now you're trying to pass that on to them or whatnot. And so it all comes from care. But, um, you know, I've also told you that I come from a family where... You know, one of my parents, you know, that that parent is very, very highly critical. And that parent justifies all of that, you know, saying that it comes from place of care, mm-hmm. right? Like the more that you care about someone, the more you're honest with them, which means that, you know, you know inevitably you're more critical of them, mm-hmm. you know? But so when I try to think of that as like, okay, that's my reasoning for why I am the way that I am right now. But then you take that to the nth degree and then that's something that I really don't like about my mm. own upbringing, then mm. it just makes me second guess. Like mm, maybe I'm not going about things the right way or that's not, or at least I can't use that as my reasoning, you know, because if I take it, you know, if I extrapolate it out, it, it could become something that's kind of ugly later on. Well, there's, there's criticism and then there's constructive criticism and it's, it's, 
it's on us as parents to not just, you know, point out the the problem, but explain why that's a problem and, and offer a solution. I mean, I usually say because I said. Yeah, and that's not like. <laughs> that's very constructive, right? One of the things that I had a talk with, with Riley recently, not Riley, Paige recently. You know, Paige is 10, but she's bright. And um, I told her, you know, just because me or an adult says something, tells you something, you have to do something, doesn't mean you don't have, you can't have an opinion on it. And if you have a compelling opinion on why you should not do this, then I want to hear it. And it's okay to articulate that, even if it's a teacher. But you better come up with something, something, some good reason why. And sometimes even if you have a good reason and it makes sense, you're still not going to get your way. So I said, just because, you know, I tell you, you know, like you got to make your bed or something like that. And it's like, maybe you don't want to make your bed because what there's a fort underneath it or something like that. It's like, you can articulate that to me, like, tell me that. And then, but give me a solution too. It's like, okay, but how about in two hours I make my bed when the fort's done? Like that, that was like a scenario that I gave her. Um, I think that's constructive. I think that if, if we, we teach our kids to be able to articulate why they don't want to do something or go along with something. I think that's more important than just going, just making them go along with it. Does that make sense? Oh, it does. I mean, an example that, that kind of comes to mind for me is that, so Charlotte, who's my six year old now, she's going to be seven in December, a couple months that she, I've noticed a change in her that, you know, she used to be very argumentative, you know, or, mm-hmm. or she has been kind of argumentative with me about certain things. You know, it used to be, I would just say, oh, why don't we do this? And she would just do it, right? Go along with it. Mm-hmm. And then she went this through this period of time where she was, kind of, you know, talking back about it or, you know, just not wanting to do it. And so what I've noticed recently is that she actually is trying to articulate why it is that she doesn't want to do something which kind of goes along with, mm-hmm. with your lines, which I, you know, I appreciate at least the thought process that goes behind it. But I have also now seen situations where, because I'm so used to her pushing back that I immediately, you know, either say certain things or, or, or take, you know, a more authoritative tone with her. And then she will automatically start to articulate why it is that I'm not seeing that she was actually doing what it is that I wanted her to do or why she will be doing it. But, you know, X, Y, and Z are the reasons why she is not going to do it right now. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, so I just, I see her doing the things that you are wanting, you know, that you are, you kind of, um, you're laying out as being a positive thing, Mm -hmm. right. With your kids is that, you know, she is taking the time to try to explain something. Right. And, and I see that as a good thing, right. Because I feel like it's much easier for us to get, you know, find common ground now because, and it sounds kind of ridiculous, right? Because she's, she's six years old, but Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I think that anytime that you can find common ground, whether or not it's, you know, it's a peer or it's, you know, your kids that that is better because then there's a lot less conflict, right? And there's a lot more resolution because you can figure out how to make it work. And to add to that, 
you're setting a good example that even though you're an authority, that that you are providing your unvited attention to hear her argument. And I think that's super important. You know, I've I've been with Paige growing up so fast and going into puberty soon and all of that stuff, you know, it's it's super important, especially as a father to a daughter, to nurture that relationship as long as I can because, you know, again, teenage years are coming 12 to up 18. And, yeah. <laughs> Just remember and it's, that. If I can plant that seed in her mind and her heart that I'm I'm a, I'm a good dad, I'm a cool person to to, you know, like – okay to come and talk to you about stuff, then I'm going to take every opportunity. And so lately I've really been like undivided attention. Like if she wants to talk, if she, um, I get this a lot too. Like, so Friday night she goes to her grandma's house, Mm -hmm. spends the night at grandma's house, which I think is very important also because, you know, they're getting older and they, you know, spending time with them so she can remember them, et cetera. But I've noticed that when I pick her up on Saturday nights, she's no iPad, no books, no Netflix. By her choice, she wants to curl up next to me and watch something on Netflix together or... So you're still on Netflix anyways? Well, yeah, but like play video games (laughs) together. I don't know about playing games. (laughs) Play video games together on Xbox. Sorry, Uh, sorry, Xbox. uh, that's a serious game or she just wants to just bond show me what she drew over the weekend like she's she really has that um she misses hanging out with me and so i try to give her my undivided attention when she talks to me about something that's important to her it might not really be important to me but if she's you know telling me about some kid at school that you know got a snake and it's like she's taking her time out the day to talk to me and so like i'm gonna give her the the attention and the respect my phone down to not you know my time to yeah uh yeah because i think that you know that sets a good example um that i can come and talk to my dad and he'll pay attention to me you know um and so when she gets older it's like Oh yeah, I remember that. Like whenever I came to talk to him, you know, I had his undivided attention. Um, he was actually interested in stuff that, like, because I think back when I was a kid and I was excited about Lincoln Park or some shit mm-hmm. like that. You know, I'm telling my dad, and he could care less. And a couple like Beavis and Butthead, my dad actually sat down and watched an episode with me, and he laughed his ass off. And that that will always that will always be in my memory because that was as you know goofy as it is that was a bonding moment you know that i'll never forget well i mean i i think a lot of this goes goes comes down to the fact that if you create a safe place Mm -hmm. space a safe space i think for your kids where they don't feel like they're being judged where they feel like they have support where they feel like um you know that they're dealing with someone who is human right not let this authority authority figure right yeah. that's speaking down to them but just someone that you know is is, is like them um i think that, that that goes a long way you know to to keeping up keeping those like open lines of communication yeah. right because then they know that they can feel okay to go there right yeah yeah so um it's already been an hour and seven minutes we said we we're gonna keep it down to 60 minutes and now we're at 67 Crazy, so huh? that, that could be a good 
good or bad thing for you listeners out there. So <laughs> uh, let's talk about what we had for dinner real quick. Okay. So we had Biggie's Burgers, which is down here on Mission and PB. Mm-hmm. I think they have another location actually, maybe in like Oceanside. But anyway, or San Marcos. But anyways, it's been a place that I've gone to a number of times over the last few years. And so tonight our choices were basically we were going to get Pomas again. But Shout out Pomas. Yes, we do, we do love Pomas. But they were having the farmer's market. So we decided to not go and venture into that part of town. So our choices were Dave's Hot Chicken yeah. or Biggie's Burgers. And Preston's never had Biggie, so I suggested that. And we both got the Double King Burger, steak, fries, and onion rings. I'm stuffed. He's stuffed. I'm stuffed, too. But we both really, really liked it. I mean, for me, I've I've had Biggie's, you know, probably a dozen times. And uh, they never disappoint. So It's pretty good. I will say the the Double Burgers. I'm a big boy. I eat. But that's a lot (laughs) for me. Probably and I, a single. And I told Preston, I told Preston that I had actually, you know, maybe a couple of years ago, finished a triple King Burger. So, you know, I put him to shame. This, you know, you probably don't know what Justin looks like, but he's on the smaller side. You know, he is an Asian man, an older Asian man. He's like, he's an older Asian man. Typical. <laughs> Parentheses, typical. This guy can pack food away. I mean, we... we We're not sure where it goes, but... We, go well, to dinner. we know where it goes about an hour from now, but yeah. <laughs> we go to dinner to this diner. Um, what's it called? Redford's. Redford's, yeah. On Elkhorn Boulevard. And they have a, a massive cinnamon roll. And this guy gets one at the beginning of every <laughs> that's the, meal. That's the appetizer. That's the appetizer. It's a giant cinnamon roll <laughs> with extra frosting. <laughs> and then, then I move on to like right. my main. Right. My main. <laughs> I don't know where he puts yeah, it. And he's <laughs> way more fit than I am. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's going to be like, you know, how people always talk about how Asian people, they oh, they look so young. They look so good for so long. And I always say that they do up until a certain age. Right. And it's usually like in their like maybe 60s or 70s. And then they look like, you know, <laughs> death walking around from that time on. So maybe it's going to be the same thing with weight, right? Like, so, you know, I'm going to be like eating like this and then I'll be fine. And then sometime in my 60s, like, you know, I'm just going to get this huge pot belly. Right. And like, ugh, I'm going to be like 300 pounds. A pork dumpling. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so thanks for listening. Thank you. We, I know we kind of veered off topic a little bit, but I'm, I'm okay with it. And hopefully you guys are too. Yep.